0: I want to say thank you to Pastor Corey, I believe he did an amazing job last week and I was grateful for his uh, vulnerability and his boldness and um, faithfulness to preach the word as he did and and, um, challenge us as a body to continue to come together and be careful even down to the very words we speak and two weeks ago, a week before that, we began chapter uh, 9 verse 6 and the, the... point that God is a promise keeper. And Paul or, Paul uses Abraham and Sarah and the whole situation with Isaac and Ishmael to be his first example. Again, that to the main point uh, you see on your handout that God never promised salvation to everyone simply by ethnicity. Never promised. Again, Paul Paul explains in verses 1 through 5 that much of Israel is cut off, separated from Christ. And Paul says, oh, that I would be accursed that they could be saved. Again, we're we're dealing with the issue of why are so many of Israel separated from Christ? Aren't they Jews? And Paul says, listen, not everyone is a Jew who thinks they're a Jew in the truest sense. And, And we looked at Romans 2 28, of, of being a Jew outwardly versus a Jew inwardly. And simply because you're of Abraham's descent doesn't mean you're the true people of God. We, we said that there were two Israels, an ethnic Israel and a spiritual issue, uh, Israel. And, and Paul will quote Genesis 25, 23 here in verse 12 to make that very clear even with Isaac. And so Paul puts forth Isaac and Ishmael. And for the sake of time, we won't go back into those details about how, God again, God promised a child to Abraham and Sarah. God took longer than than they thought he should have. Abraham and Sarah say, well, I've got this uh, lady over here named Hagar. She can provide you a child. And Abraham gets a child in the name of Ishmael. And we saw in Genesis 16 how how Abraham tried to pass Ishmael off as the promised child. Child and basically saying, Hey, God, bless this. And God says, That's not what I promised. That's not what I'm gonna bless. And so within within Abraham, within Abraham's two children, there, there was a distinction. Okay, and Paul puts forth a second example here of this truth: that not all Israel is Israel, not simply by ethnicity and, and connection to Abraham. Are you in the people of God? And he puts forth Jacob and Esau. And again, this is to prove that God is faithful. Don't miss that. God is faithful. Just because much of Israel is separated from Christ doesn't mean God is unfaithful. And so Paul offers this second example here of proving the faithfulness of God. And what he does here is, is he makes the distinction narrower. And and this is why I believe that Paul didn't just stop at Ishmael and Isaac. Why then does Paul go to Isaac and his relationship to Rebekah and their two sons, Jacob and and Esau? And here's why I believe that he does that. Because if if you just left it at at Isaac and Ishmael and, and that someone would, here's, here's what our tendency would be. We would say, okay, the reason God chose to use Isaac and not Ishmael is because of the whole Hagar thing. We would want to find a, a physical, man-centered reason as to why God did what he did. Inside all of us, we want to be the master. We want to be the determiner. Okay, And if he left it that, you would say, okay, well, clearly God used Isaac and not Ishmael because the whole Ishmael thing should have never happened. Abraham should have never had a relationship with Hagar. Ishmael should have never. It's, it's man's sin that drove God's hand. Man, man becomes the determiner of what God did. You see that? You see how someone could argue that if you just leave it at Abraham and, I, and, and Isaac and Ishmael. That, that man's sin or man's decision somehow forced God's hand. That, that maybe that was why God chose Isaac. Because, hey, God looked ahead maybe and foresaw the whole Ishmael-Hagar thing. And so he chose Isaac. And listen, Paul, Paul knows, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he knows the wretchedness of our hearts. He knows how we want to be the captain of our ships. We want man's actions to be the centerpiece we want man's actions to be the determiner of what god does we want to be we want to be lord that really is the essence of all sin and so paul gets narrower and he's going to use an example that is going to totally eliminate the possibility that man was a determiner so still focus on isaac that's key The blessing was going through Isaac, still focused on Isaac. So Ishmael is over here. He's separated. You got Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. Rebekah gets pregnant. Okay? Isaac grows up, takes a bride. Rebekah is pregnant with twins. All right? So in this illustration, you have one man, one woman, one conception, one womb, right? And two babies. Very different from Abraham and Sarah. There you had two women, two conceptions, two wombs, two acts. Now now he's drilled it down to one. There's no, no shenanigans going on here, okay? None of this take my maidservant stuff. So to dispel the thought that something man did or that woman did drove God's decisions, forced God's hand to think that man's behavior or man's sin or man's whatever drove this. Paul uses an example of two children born to the same parents, same conception, same womb. Again, no foolishness here. Look at verse 10. And not only this. Again, not only the Abraham, not only Ishmael, Isaac, not only this, but there was Rebecca, when she had conceived twins. You see, you see why Paul says this, by one man, two babies, one womb, one daddy. All right? Our father Isaac. Again, going through Isaac. Okay? And Paul, And Paul, again, he is building this on Genesis in verse 12 he will sp- and and here in 10 he quotes Genesis 25:23 right down in the margin Genesis 25:23 talking about Isaac's sons the lo- verse 23 the Lord said to her listen two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, do you see how this proves Paul's point explicitly that simply because not all Israel is Israel doesn't compromise the faithfulness of God, this is exactly what God said and determined would happen. Two nations are in your womb, Rebecca. Two peoples. What's his point? Not everyone who is in Abraham's family simply by ethnicity or birth, and not even everyone who is in Isaac's family by ethnicity or birth, automatically are a part of the people of God. Therefore, when much of Israel is separated from Christ, the problem is not with God. God has not been unfaithful, not for one single moment. The reality is, is because God is faithful, not all Israel is Israel. Because God is faithful, he maintained that remnant, even when much of Israel, the nation of Israel did not believe. What Paul is saying is that their disbelief did not infringe for one second on the faithfulness of God. And Paul is taking this all the way back to its roots, as far back as it could go, to say from the very start, God said it would be this way, and guess what? God did exactly what he said he would do, and guess what? History came to be exactly what God foretold that it would be. Not because he looked down the portals of time and said, Oh, you know, uh, Esau's going to sell his birthright, so I I better pick Jacob. That's not true. And look at verse 11. Paul makes it clear you can't go there. For though the twins had not yet been born and had not done anything good or bad, listen, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Listen, this is the why behind not only this but if we could get this if we oh if we could get this uh, my kids probably they're so tired of me saying this because they they ask these great questions and we have these conversations and the answer always boils back to the answer to the fill in God's glory. The why behind it all that God would be glorified. This is for his glory. Look, Paul shows that everything God does is for his glory. I, I, I so debated pausing here that this and, and looking. I mean, there, I keep this, this piece of paper in my, in my Bible, and, and even now my flesh is so tempted to, to go here, but here it is. <laughs> L- listen to Isaiah 48, because this is huge, guys. Listen to Isaiah 48, 9-11. God is speaking here. He says this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. That I, not, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake. Listen. For my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen, if we could get in our minds the centrality of God's glory to Himself over everything else, you and I are not the centerpiece. God's glory is the centerpiece. I mean, Ephesians one four, God chose His people. It says for His glory. Isaiah forty three six and seven, God created us for His glory. Jeremiah thirteen eleven, God called Israel for His glory. Psalm one oh six, God rescued Israel from Egypt for His glory. It says Romans nine seventeen, God raised up Pharaoh for His glory. Exodus four, God defeated Pharaoh for His glory. Ezekiel twenty fourteen, God spared Israel in the wilderness for His glory. 2 Samuel 7, God gave Israel the victory in Canaan for His glory. It goes on and on. I, I, I just I traced just the, the, the actions of God, front and back. I traced the actions of God. Everything God does, listen, is first and foremost for His glory. And, and we live in a world that wants to, that wants to make you and I The centerpiece of everything. Even the cross. Oh, the cross is a testimony to my great worth. The cross is first and foremost a testimony to God's glory. We were helpless, ungodly sinners. For whatever reason, the mercy of God, he says, I'm going to do it. And what Paul is saying here is God does not bestow mercy simply due to birth order, which is what they did in that day and age. The, the, the older would clearly be preeminent. And God says, you know what? I'm going to choose the younger. Paul, Paul is ruling out man altogether. He is ruling out the mistruth that God is looking in the future. He's seeing man's actions, and then he's responding. That's not what he does. God shows Jacob and he passed over Esau again nothing had been done here's the problem if if and and this is why this is important if we were reading this story and we didn't see this and we just we would say oh well here's why God chose Jacob because Esau sold his birthright and God is God is making sure all the way back to Genesis 25 I'm telling you ahead of time what's going to happen And you know what God was faithful to do? God was faithful to bring it to pass. And it was to his glory. And and the reality is, God is free to do this. Nothing about Jacob, nothing about Esau was the why behind God granting mercy. It was to God's glory. It's all about God. And you see it in the handout, God completely determined this to happen, and then he carried it through faithfully. Not only did God God determine it to happen, but God carried it through. And, And that was true even in Isaac and Ishmael. Even if it took 20, 30 years for God to bring forth Isaac, God was faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. Again, before the twins had done anything, This is sourced in God and His freedom to do with His mercy whatever He wants to do with His mercy. Nothing about the kids, nothing about how they were conceived, nothing about the daddies, none of that stuff dictated God's hand. You see it on your handout. Paul is showing us that God reserves the right and remains free to do whatever He wants with His mercy. And it does again and, and this does not why that much of Israel is separated from God why does that not contradict God's faithfulness because God told them in your womb Rebekah are two nations and the older will serve the younger And again look for look at 12 Again the Paul quotes that the older will serve the younger Verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. These are lightning rod passages. So I don't want to to dance around them. They're they're very easy to explain. Paul, again, he's he's quoting back to uh, Genesis 25 as we quoted. And in the Greek here, you have an active and you have a passive. Okay, that's key to understand. Understand this. Ungodly, helpless sinners. That's where they started. Separated from God. That's where they started. From the point of conception in sin. We're sinners separated from the holy God. And, and what he's saying here is again, you see it in a handout. Understand this. To be loved here means to be a recipient of mercy. God picked Jacob. That's the loved. Okay? That's to be a recipient of his love. To be hated simply means to be passed over. All right, it's not hated like you and I think about hated. All right, just you've got to get that clear. It it literally means he left him alone. He passed over him. He said, "I'm going to work through Jacob." And get that get that American hatred stuff out of seeing how this that is not hate as we mean it. This is meant for contrast. And this is, and really, this is a Semitic idiom where they would write these things in ways to heighten the contrast. And they would do that by stating the contrast in absolute terms. It's the same, very similar, if not the same thing we see in Matthew 10, 37. We see it in Luke 14, 26, where he says, If any of you do not hate your father and mother... You are not worthy to be my disciples. Clearly, Jesus is not saying despise your mother and father. He's saying in comparison to the way that you love me. Everything else will look like hate. In the comparison to being chosen to have your lineage be the, the path that God would bless to not be chosen looks like hate. That makes sense? And I thought about this and, uh, you know, I, I, I was never the most athletic, obviously, do not have a physical prowess that would warrant people to choose me quickly to be on their teams. And I, I thought about this like when you were kids and, you know, you're kids and you're all lined up there and you know the situation, you've got two captains, let's pick the teams. Guess who got picked last? Not the 6'4 guy, let's go with the five seven, hundred twenty pound dude. Right? Listen, you're standing there at the end, and every time they're like, hey, I'll take such and such, I'll take such and such, I'll take such and such. And then it gets to the very end, and you know what? They didn't even name me. They would just say, okay, I guess I got you. You're what's left. You're passed over. Felt like hate because you were passed over. Some of of us, maybe me too, some of us in here might still be stinging from having him passed over. And, And both examples that Paul uses show God's distinguishing between two family members, but yet he had every single right to do that. And yet even within God's sovereignty, man's responsibility played out, interwoven in that story. Listen, Jacob was chosen, here's the deal, Jacob was chosen in spite of being a deceiver. To the point where God would change his name to kind of separate him, maybe, from that reputation. Esau was willing to, he thought so little of his birthright that he would sell it for a cup of stew. Yet, where is all of this rooted in God's sovereignty? It's rooted in God's sovereignty. Do not get past that. I, I read a quote where a woman came to Charles Spurgeon one time and said, as to Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. She said, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My, troubling, my trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. You know, the problem is you, with you and I and me, you, all of us. We, we erroneously have no trouble understanding how God could love us when that ought to be the most dumbfounding thing in all the world. We have a hard time understanding how God would not love us. And it's rooted in the fact that we don't understand, number one, the greatness of God, the holiness of God. We don't understand our own wretchedness. We have no trouble understanding, oh, of course God would pick me. No one is more surprised that God would pick Chris than Chris. And because of that, we come to these passages and we have a hard time accepting what they say because we're operating from a totally different mindset. That's why Paul spent three chapters understanding that, uh, uh, trying to help us understand that none were righteous, the, the, the depravity of man, the otherness of God. The, the point is that, listen. None deserved for God to act on their behalf and to bestow mercy. No one can make a claim on God's mercy so receiving it or even not if you want to go to swear you're not responding to it, it doesn't compromise the faithfulness of God. That's what Paul is saying. God is free. No one can make a claim on God's mercy. It's God to give out as he desires. And we're going to look at it more beginning uh, next week in verses 14 and following. Uh, that the, you know, the clay can't say to the potter, can't complain to the potter, who makes one lump of noble use and one lump, of, you know, one lump out of common use. That's not for the clay to demand. And, and you ought to wrestle with these truths. Because God is so far beyond us. His ways, Isaiah 55, 8, 9. We say that and we quote that when it's convenient. Yet when it's hard, we want God's ways to be like our ways. (coughs) We want God to do what we would do. But really, if you boil down it, you don't want God to do what you and I would do. And again, all illustrations fall short, but... You know, we, we suppose I go into a restaurant and I randomly pick six people and pay for their meal. Can the ones that I didn't pick, can they really complain? They will. Trust me, they will. And I shared with you an illustration months and months ago in Gainesville. Pray for me, I'm driving to Gainesville this afternoon, even as I say this illustration. I'm not going to eat the Waffle House. But, you know, the illustration in the Waffle House where a man goes in, pays for some people's meals, walks out. Somebody whose meal he doesn't pay for gets mad, walks out and kills him. True story. Right? If I go into a restaurant, listen, I'm free to do whatever I want to do with my mercy. And you go to the other side of the argument, if you will. If I walk into a restaurant and I stand up on a table and I say, Whoever will follow me outside, I will pay for your food. Listen, if someone, if someone says, I don't believe that clown, I'm gonna sit right here, they don't make me less faithful. So either side of the coin, wherever you may land, listen, it doesn't make God less faithful. He crucified his son on a cross. Whosoever would come unto him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If anyone would come after me, take his cross daily and follow me. Boom, you got it. But here's the point. None could demand the mercy of God. None could lay claim on it. And the challenge is, listen, inside all of us is a pride, is an arrogance that fights our reception of these truths. We love, listen, we love to tell others, we love even to tell God how they ought to do things, how they should dole out their mercy. We love to pass out blame. And listen, here's what I know about myself. I will go to great lengths to vindicate myself and to pass culpability on others. And, and it just even as, as God's sovereignty would have it, just in, in recent weeks and months, again, I've been working on, on this passage for about a, a month now, trying to put it together, be very careful with it. We've seen it with regards to, to Chick-fil-A, and, and, and Chick-fil-A, the contract runs out on, on their support of FCA, and the contract runs out on their support of the Salvation Army, and they don't support those groups anymore. And all these articles get written just blasting FCA. I mean, blasting Chick-fil-A. Listen, Chick-fil-A can do whatever they want to do with their money. All right? Chick-fil-A is in the business of selling chicken sandwiches. Let's get that straight. But, but listen, criticizing them, blaming them, charging them with, oh, they're caving in, they're doing this. Listen, th- listen, it's none of your business. Salvation Army has no claim on Chick-fil-A's money. FCA has no claim on Chick-fil-A's money. Here, here, and here's where the road meets the road. Here, here, would, be, here would be, this is how desperate. How about you open up your checkbook and let me judge you how you do, deal with your money? Right? I, I want to write to these people and say, hey, are you supporting FCA? You supporting Salvation Army yourself? I mean, he's not here today, but Bill, Bill Jenkins is a, a, a missionary for FCA. Let's all open our checkbooks. If you're really convicted about it, open your checkbooks and let's make up the difference. Oh, well, Chris, well, oh, no, okay. Now, now, rubber meets the road. Like, you want to tell others what to do with their money, but you don't want to be told what to do with yours. And, and listen, I don't have stock options in Chick-fil-A. Every time I go by Chick-fil-A, those lines are still wrapped around a building four times, so it ain't bothered them one bit. But listen, we love to tell others what to do with their stuff. We love to be Lord. You see on the handout, underlying all of our struggles with this text is pride. Number one, we think we deserve something from God. Secondly, we think we know better than God and we think we should be able to tell even God what to do with His mercy. Unfortunately, it doesn't just stop with Chick-fil-A. The hard truth is this. If God saved nobody from His wrath, He would be no less God. Because none deserved it. Listen, if he saved just one person, he would be no less God. If he saved one million, he'd be no less God. We need to be real careful that we don't try to play God, that we don't try to tell God how to dole out his mercy. We need to be real careful that we don't stand above Scripture and demand that it be one way and not the other, because that's what we would have done. We need to be real careful to assume that our hearts are clean enough and righteous enough to judge the not only the goodness of God but that of others, or wise enough to judge the wisdom of God. There, there's a thousand or more reasons why God does what He does, and I can promise you this: if by some reason He sat down and told you, you wouldn't even comprehend it. I, I can't think. I, even as I say that, I think about the verse in. I think it's Jeremiah where he says, I'm about to do a work in your day, and even if I told you, you wouldn't comprehend it. Maybe around Jeremiah 9 or something like that. Even if he told you, you wouldn't comprehend it. I mean, it would be that, that would be as paramount, and I think we've said this before, but as, as me going to the Stewart's or the Finkley's or the Rainer's or the Guthrie's or the Hudson's or any of the other families here, who adopted children and say, go, are you only a, you only came back with one from China? Oh man, that's terrible. Man, pray for your mercy quotient. O- only one? Aren't there more? You only got one? You know the better question is how many of y'all got zero? We don't ask that question. Right? Listen, none, none of those children in China deserve the stewards to fly over there and, 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 and ransom that child. None. Now, out of obedience and a call to God, God, they felt like that was the obedient thing to do, and they did it. Praise God. But, but listen, we love to question the mercy of others. The better question is this. What about you and your mercy? What are you doing with the mercy God's given you? The bountiful grace and mercy that God lavishes on you every single day. What are you doing with it? We can sit here on our high horses and we can be critical of everyone else and and not do anything ourselves. That's the depravity of man. And you see it on your handout, our our sinful temptation is to be critical of how God extends His mercy. And yet we ourselves aren't extending His mercy that He gave you for the very reason to extend to others. And we become cul-de-sacs of God's mercy instead of conduits. So why does this matter? So, Chris... Why does this matter? Well, here's why it matters. You see it in the handout. This has huge effects on our worship. Huge effects on our worship. If God is initiating undeserved mercy, the response is one way of worship. If you and I earned or merited or we were smart enough to choose God to get that mercy, that's a whole other form of worship. Huge implications. Listen, I dare say, and this is—I think this is part of the problem—is, you know, if we earned it, or if we even if we chose it, God—if we're not careful, God becomes our servant and owes us gratitude. And if God doesn't live up to our expectations, expectations you know what we do—we'll just go down the street. We'll find another God. The moment you see it all the time, the moment God doesn't do what you think He should do, we just bolt, or or we come in here. We come in here, barely run in here with one minute to spare, sit down and sing some songs, and go to open up the Word. And the second the Word is done, we close our Bibles, and and nothing happens for another seven days. Why? Because it's all about us. If, if I singularly and totally chose God on my own, then He ought to be grateful to me. He owes me. Listen, and this plays out in our lives every single day. God better keep me or else I'm going elsewhere. But if the opposite is true, if God's the hero, then we owe Him everything. You see the difference? This plays out every single day in our lives. Worship, church gatherings, reading the Bible, holiness. All are optional if we're the hero. Sacrifice, it's optional. if I, I shouldn't sacrifice if I'm the hero. God ought to be the one sacrificing. But if God's the hero... Which I think that's the point that Paul is saying here, then we're responsible. Again, I, I would challenge you get over the argument trying to determine and balance out God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, trying to balance them, leave it alone. Here, here's, what we can, here's what we can clearly see God is the initiator of his mercy, he sovereignly initiated, he's the hero. And, and, and I don't believe this text is here to help us fix the tension between sovereignty and responsibility. It remains. The goal here you see on your handout is to show that God is infinitely reliable and as such He can be trusted. No matter what you face, God is infinitely reliable and He can be trusted. Even when I don't make... The, the good news is this. Even when I don't make the responsible decision. Even when I... Get a promise from God like Abraham and Sarah got, and I go over and I mess around with Hagar. Guess what never faltered? God's faithfulness. God's reliability. That ought to bring, bring, it doesn't free you up to sin, but that ought to free you up when you do. God never wavered. The, the good news that I take from that, even and to the point where even with Abraham, Romans 4, you know who Paul holds up as a hero of faith? Abraham. Abraham. Not perfect. But he had great faith. That, that I, I don't know about y'all, but that's comforting to me. And you see it in handout, Paul is writing that we would know for sure that the hero of salvation is God. He is taking the initiative. He is the one who is sovereign over it. Again, just like verse nine eleven says, For though the twins were not yet born and not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. He's the hero. And God is going to do things in such a way that obliterates our ability to fight Him for His glory. And we're going to struggle with that. So you know what God does? He says, I'm gonna give Isaac, I'm gonna give Isaac's wife, I'm gonna give him two children, and I'm gonna let the younger serve the older. And I'm gonna tell you ahead of time that I'm gonna do that. And for generations it's gonna prove that I'm faithful. And, and what Paul is showing here, and what he's even reminding us of this there would be no Israel at all never mind a subset of the nation who belonged to God, the spiritual Israel, if it were not for God and His sovereign grace and mercy. What did, again, go back to Genesis 25-23. What did He say to Rebecca? There are two nations in your womb. God's the one doing this. You, to the one who says, okay, my faith saved me. I say, okay, I'm not arguing with you. But if it were not for God's sovereign mercy and grace, you would have nothing to place your faith in. God is the hero. He's the one sovereign over this. There would be nothing for our faith to be in without the sovereign mercy of grace acting on behalf of ungodly, helpless sinners. He's the hero. You see it in a handout. Salvation is by grace through faith, but it is rooted in the initiative of God. That's why it's firm. It's rooted in the faithfulness of God who is a promise keeper. 2 Corinthians 1.20 and 21 says, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes. If ever you wondered if God was a promise keeper, go back to the cross. If ever there was a promise that he was going to back out on, it would have been to not crucify his son. And yet he did exactly what he said he would do. So argue from the greater to the lesser, and we've seen this in Romans. If he was willing to do the greater, that's Romans 8.31. God, who was not willing to spare his own son, how much will he also not freely with him give you all things? He's done the harder. Getting you into his family and people was the hard thing. Keeping you, first, go to First 1 Peter 1, 1.5, even that, you are kept by the power of God. Sovereign. But that's why it's sure. That's why it's certain. That's why you could say, I give you eternal life. Our our faith rests in God and His initiative to show grace, to show mercy, to make a way for us to be forgiven. God is a hero, not you and I. Listen, and we so much want to be the hero. And when things don't work out, we pass the blame to God as if he were unfaithful. We want to be the ones to choose God our own, but when someone doesn't choose God, choose God, somehow God becomes the bad guy. We want it both ways. God's the hero. God is the hero. Without God and his initiative to show grace and mercy, there would be no way. And and we see this in Isaac and Ishmael. We see it in Jacob and Esau, a God who takes the initiative and carries through and does exactly what he says he will do. And the point is this. God never promised salvation to everyone, not even all of Israel, simply because of your ethnicity. Simply because you can trace your heritage back to Abraham. Doesn't guarantee. Therefore, if some do not believe, listen, God is not unfaithful. And Paul uses God's past activity to show this basic premise and principle about God and his activity. And the principle he states clearly in nine six: It is not as though the word of God has failed for they and are not of Israel who are descended from Israel. He says it in 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that, the purpose of God's, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Not because of works, but by faith. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. I don't know how much clearer that could be. We don't like it. And it gets worse. If you don't like that one, go to verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Hello. We'll deal with that next week. It's all right. But but again, all of this goes back to what Paul began saying in chapter 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Every single man in the face of this earth could be found to be a liar. And here's the reality. God's gospel is true. And you see it on your handout, God is free to do whatever he desires to do with his mercy and the right conclusion to God's activity will never be that God is unfaithful. No matter the tragedy, no matter the trial, God remains faithful. And yet, our decisions are not inconsequential. Abraham's decisions weren't inconsequential. Jacob and Esau's decisions were not inconsequential but here's the reality here's, what, here's the reality and you see it in your handout our final judgment will be based upon the way we have responded to the gospel bottom line how have you responded to the gospel to be finally saved we must have believed in Christ and to be lost we must have not believed no one, no one will stand on the precipice of hell and say, I didn't deserve this. None. None will stand there and say, I didn't know. And even that, I hear the argument. Oh, what about the man on the island who never heard? Here, here, and we, we want to blame God for it. Here's the deal. What are you doing about the man on the island who's never heard? That's not the question I ever, I never hear that question asked. It's like, what about the man or woman on the island who never heard? And yet we just sit there flipping through the channels, putting all our money in the bank, letting it where rust and moth destroy. Here's what I understand about the Bible, and we'll get there in Romans 10. God has given us mercy in order for us to extend that mercy to others. You and I are meant to be the vessels of that mercy by which the man or the woman, supposed man on the island, man and woman on the island, we haven't heard. We're the ones that are supposed to tell them. Again, you see in our hearts how desperately wicked we are and how much we want to pass the blame and not, not, not accept culpability and responsibility. God is not the one who has been unfaithful. Man is unfaithful. And yet God always remains faithful. And, and again, there's a tension there. And I pray that we would be a church that would be okay with tensions, that we'd be okay with not being able to explain everything away. We'd be okay with worshiping a God that's beyond our comprehension, whose ways are not our ways. Who we be amazed at how gracious He is, that we'd wonder at His grace. And lastly, again, remind yourselves, God remains faithful even if everyone else is unfaithful and doesn't believe. God's promises never fail. If you refuse Christ, it does not impugn God's faithfulness. One second. And our assurance rests upon God's character and His grace and His mercy. Nothing about us. It's built upon the glory of God. Amen.